Today we're getting back into the book of Acts. We started a sermon series early in fall on the book of Acts, and we are going to work our way through. Uh, but we took a break for Christmas, and so we've had about a six-week break where we looked at some of the different stories of Christmas, some of the ugly stories at Christmas that are often neglected but still have some powerful messages for us. Today we're back in the book of Acts, and where we stopped was just before Saul, who becomes Paul's conversion. That's the story we're going to look at today. The first eight chapters of Acts have been fairly exciting. We saw the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples and in Jerusalem, them preaching in these different languages and the gospel going out, many people getting saved and the church being born. We then see in Acts chapter 8 how it moves from Jerusalem and then to Samaria as the gospel spreads. And then we also see as it moves to the Ethiopian eunuch a foreshadow of where Acts is going by the end when it ends in Rome, that this message is for the Jews, but then it spreads to the Samaritans who are half Jews, and then it spreads to the ends of the earth. The message of Acts that continues to this day. We are part of the story. In fact, I, uh, some churches and organizations have even referred to themselves as Acts 29. And I kind of like that uh, idea because when you look at the book of Acts, it only has 28 chapters. And so what they're trying to say is that we are continuing the story. The book of Acts doesn't end. It just continues on with Acts 29 and Acts 30 and the story of the church. And yet while all this wonderful stuff is going on in Acts and while we're excited and we're seeing the church flourish, Acts 9 verse 1 starts with the word meanwhile, meaning not these eight chapters have happened and now this is going to go on or happen, but saying that while all this great stuff in the first eight chapters of Acts is happening, meanwhile, in parallel with this, Saul was uttering threats with every breath he was eager to destroy the Lord's followers. So right parallel, right along with all of this great stuff going on in the church, there were some terrible things that were going on. Just like the Christmas story. Alongside of the great stuff that was going on, there was some terrible things that were happening. And we have to be aware of that. We can't just stick our head in the sand and ignore the terrible because the two often work alongside each other. The gospel was spreading fast, but it was not all skipping and giddy. A man by the name of Saul was uttering threats. And note what it says. It was, he was uttering threats with every breath. We know right away from this that that Saul was obviously a dedicated person. Uh, he was an obsessed person. Every breath. In other words, Paul ate, drank, slept, dreamt, thought, and obsessed about destroying the church. Every breath. His whole life was focused on this project. He was a passionate 
individual. He didn't want to just destroy Jesus' followers. He was eager to destroy them. Up to this point, Saul has only been mentioned one other time in the book of Acts. And this is the character that we see, the one that's described here. He's mentioned at the martyrdom of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian who died for his commitment to Jesus. And there in Acts 7, we read that Stephen's accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul, chapter 8, verse 1, goes on to continue the story, was one of the witnesses. And he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. In other words, Saul was there, and as these people were about to kill Stephen and stone him to death, Saul was the one that said, give me your jackets. I'll hold on to them. You can lay them at my feet so that you can be free to really chuck those rocks and kill this guy. And Saul completely agreed with the killing of Stephen. Then verse 3 goes on and says, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house dragging out both men and women and throwing them in prison. We can't forget this backstory to Saul, who later on many of us know as the hero Paul. This man who was eager to kill Christians, who with every breath was breathing out threats to them, was a witness in agreeing to the killing of Stephen, was going everywhere, house to house, dragging men and women out of the houses for no other reason that they, than that they loved Jesus and throwing them into prison. And now here Saul was uttering threats with every breath, eager to destroy the Lord's followers. Now, recognize that this is the meanwhile. This is going on at the same time that the church in another aspect, is flourishing. We have to understand that Saul was not just a psychopath whose zeal was simply murder and bloodlust. Saul was committed to God as he understood God. We see this very often, even in today's world, how zeal for God can often, particularly when it's misplaced, misunderstood, zeal for God can be, and the result of that can be and bring about some of the bloodiest wars in history. We think about even some of the terrorist organizations today. Now, certainly some people probably join these organizations uh, no more than just for a thrill or because of bloodlust, but there are also many people in those organizations that their murderous ideology does spring out of a true belief in God as they understand Him. They truly believe God is calling them to do this, to destroy the infidel, to destroy those who are not followers of God the way they believe people should follow God. That's the kind of Attitude, that's the kind of zeal that Saul had. He thought he was doing right. Jesus' followers, according to Saul, were a heresy within the Jewish faith. See, these are people that 
were blaspheming God. They were claiming that a mere man by the name of Jesus was to be equated with God himself. And not only this, but they had this belief that the Messiah was a guy who was crucified on a Roman cross. Both of these ideas, on the one hand, were blasphemous to the Jews to say that God was a human being, and also were abhorrent to the Jews. The Old Testament says that anyone who is hung on a cross is a curse. How could someone like Jesus be nailed to a cross, killed, crucified, be God's Messiah? So everything that these Jesus followers were standing for, believing, and witnessing to was, at least from Paul's perspective, a mockery of Judaism. This also was something that Saul would have believed was going against, at that time, was called the Pax Romana, which was Roman peace. Throughout the Roman world, there was generally a freedom of religion. People could practice their faith, people could practice what they believed, and there was freedom to do so. And the Jews were under that umbrella of freedom of religion. But these followers of Jesus were seeming to upset that whole system as well. Because the creed in the land, the creed of the day, was that there was one Lord. And that that Lord was Caesar. Now obviously the Jews wouldn't have believed this ultimately, but because of their history and because of uh, the fact that they've been around for so long, they were relatively tolerated by the Romans. Although when you look at the time of Paul or Saul, you will see that the Romans had the biggest problem with Jerusalem and the Jewish people. Most everybody else in the land of the day just followed their religion and at the same time believed Caesar was Lord and there was no problem. Jews were always a little bit of a problem, but the Romans tolerated them. But the Christians went just a little bit farther in proclaiming the same language of Caesar is Lord, but proclaiming over and over that Jesus is Lord. It was not just a religious statement. It was a political statement. We have one Lord, and that Lord is Jesus. And so Saul saw these Jesus followers not only as heretics, not only as blaspheming the one true God, not only as someone believing foolish things about a crucified Messiah, but they also saw these Jesus followers of someone that could bring about the wrath of Rome upon the Jewish people as they were running around claiming Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so for this reason, all these reasons, in Saul's mind and in the name of God, these people needed to be stamped out. It was for the greater good. Obviously, Saul, if you would ask him if killing people, if murder was wrong, he would have said yes, but in this case, 
This was for the greater good. In this case, he was simply protecting society, protecting the young, protecting the Jews from this heresy. Saul was the man to do it. He was young. He was eager. He was passionate. He was committed. He was focused. Can't think of a better person to assign this task to. And then something happens. Something happens in Acts chapter 9 that completely changes the story. Acts chapter 9 Whatever device you have a Bible on, go to that right now, and I'm going to read the first half of this chapter to let you hear from Scripture the 180-degree turn that suddenly happens in Saul's life. So meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he even went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. So he goes to the high priest, he gets letters that he can now take to the different synagogues in Damascus and other places so that he can start pulling out all of these people of the way, bringing them back to Jerusalem in chains. He received the letters, and as he was approaching Damascus... On this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and didn't eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, where, when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in, laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias. I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales 
fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up, he was baptized, afterward he ate some food, and he regained his strength. Now, next to Jesus' death and resurrection, Saul's conversion, his Damascus Road experience, is the most significant event in church history. Now, later in Saul's story, his name gets turned to Paul, and because that's how we are familiar with this guy, for familiarity's sake, for the rest of this message, I'm just going to refer to him as Paul. So we are talking about the same person. So Saul, who becomes Paul, Paul's conversion story is familiar to many of us if we grew up in the church. It's been immortalized in Caravaggio's painting from the 1600s that some of you might have seen. Although most of us here probably learn this story through art that's more conducive to flannelgraph and heard the story through the flannelgraph Sunday school lessons that we went through. Although for our youth that are here, they might have heard the story first from a cucumber and a tomato from VeggieTales. Though the kids that have just left, they probably heard this story first from Sunday school lady. Uh, And so there's always new people telling the story and teaching the story. Uh, But we've all heard the story in different ways. The story of Paul's conversion is one in which the most logical explanation is that something happened to him. Some kind of encounter with the risen Jesus. You can not believe that, uh, but you would have to come up with some other explanation. And it seems like the most logical explanation is that he did have an encounter with Jesus. I mean, how else do you explain the transformation of a man like this? Someone who, in the very words of Scripture, someone who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus, all of a sudden becoming a committed Jesus follower who ended up, as Jesus even said to Ananias, who ended up suffering much for the name of Jesus. I mean, this wasn't just, uh, Paul, come follow me, and I'm going to make your life wonderful and peaceful and give you the best life now. What he heard, or what Jesus told Ananias, is go to Paul, in my name heal him, for he is my chosen instrument, and he is going to learn how much he must suffer For my namesake. So Paul is going to go from this committed destroyer of Jesus' followers to becoming one of Jesus' followers and embracing the sufferings of Jesus upon himself. What causes people to make a change like that? Flannery O'Connor, the great American writer, said, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of Paul was to knock him off his horse. I mean, it just doesn't make sense any other way that someone would make this kind of a altar in their life. 
O'Connor makes a great point about the drastic measure that God uses in many of our lives to get our attention, to turn them around. However, one thing that it's important for us to note here is what we mean by Paul's conversion. See, the Damascus Road experience did not cause Paul to convert from one religion to another. Paul did not go from being a Jew to becoming a Christian. Christianity hadn't even been invented yet. Uh, Paul's conversion was not like someone leaving Islam to become a Sikh. Paul was a committed, devoted Jew, and his encounter with Jesus did not cause him to leave Judaism. Even a couple of chapters later in Acts 11, where Jesus' followers are first called Christians at Antioch. They're called Christians as kind of a nickname, almost a little bit of a mockery, you Christ follower people. But they were not seen even then as a different religion. They were just simply seen as a sect of Judaism. See, the Jews, particularly in Paul's day, were all waiting for the Messiah to come. And there were many different Jewish sects who were believing that different people were the Messiah. So this wasn't unusual. In fact, later or earlier, we talked about uh, the story with Gamaliel, and he was saying to just leave these Jesus followers alone because he's, remember those Jews here? Remember those Jews over there? They followed this guy as the Messiah. They followed that guy as the Messiah. And, and they just sort of died out over time. So Gamaliel's advice was just leave these Jesus ones alone because if it's not of God, they'll die out too. So they're not seen as another religion. They're just seen as Jews, like all the other ones, who believe that the Messiah has come. Now, many of the Jews would have disagreed with them and said, no, you're wrong. That's not the Messiah. But that doesn't make them not Jews. It just makes them incorrect in who they believe the Messiah is. So Paul never saw himself as leaving the Jewish faith. He just saw himself as finally seeing the Messiah that God had always promised finally coming. In many ways, Paul's conversion was simply a conversion to a mistaken understanding of his Jewish faith to the fulfillment of his Jewish faith. Paul had been waiting for the Messiah, and now he believed through this encounter that the Messiah had come. He was a Jew in the line of Abraham, and now he was part of what was promised to Abraham from the beginning was now happening in his day. This was the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. The question was not, were these people leaving the Jewish faith? The question was, were these Jews correct in saying that Jesus was the Messiah? Paul had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The fulfillment of everything Israel had been waiting for. 
And the message that God was now going to give to Paul was to go, as was promised to Abraham, to the ends of the earth to tell all people that they too could join Israel through the Messiah. That was the promise to Abraham that they would bless all nations and that through the Messiah that God would bring his one family together, Jew and Gentile, one family in the Messiah. That was Paul's message. That's what Paul was now going to preach. That was the message that the rest of the book of Acts is going to unpack, where we're going to see in the next few chapters, even disciples like Peter were having a hard time wrapping their mind around. That's why the early church struggled with issues like, do we still need to circumcise? Do we still need to eat kosher? Do we still need to... How Jewish do followers of Jesus have to be? Because it's not a new religion. It's Judaism fulfilled. So how Jewish do you have to be? And that starts to be unpacked through the rest of the book of Acts. Now, for all of this, we have the hindsight of history. And so the Jerusalem Council has already happened. The end of the book of Acts has happened. Church history has happened. We've got creeds and we've got Nicaea. We've got all these things that we take for granted today. But all of this would have been so new for the people in this day trying to understand this. Something had happened. Something had drastically changed the way people were thinking God was working to show them that God was fulfilling his covenant. And he was going to use one of the strangest people to proclaim that message. The height, the high persecutor of the church. Now, could you imagine if this were to happen today? Now, we like to think that if it were to happen today, we would obviously be fully embracing this. We would be the heroes of the story. If, uh, if we heard the story of a leader from ISIS coming to Jesus and preaching the gospel, we would say, wow, we would be the first to embrace a guy like that. That'd be awesome. We love reading the testimonial sections of Christianity today about people that have been drug lords and all these different type of you know, secret police in China and coming to faith in Christ. And we think we would have been right there supporting these people, cheering them on. But imagine if you had the call that Ananias got. It's one thing to sit in the comfort of your room and hear about the ISIS leader who becomes a Christian. It's another thing to hear Jesus then come to you and say, okay, Job. I want, you know that, that secret police guy who's been going into all of those underground house churches in China and dragging men and women out and throwing them in prison? Well, he's become a Christian. So, Joe, I want you to go, and I want you go and, and talk to this guy and witness to him and tell him about Jesus. All of a sudden, you're kind of like, I don't know, God. Uh, do, you, do you know who this is, and I think this is the funniest part of this story. That's Ananias' response. God calls Ananias and says, go to this Paul guy, Saul guy, and I want you to restore his sight. I want you to tell him about Jesus, and I want you to begin discipling him. And he says, Lord, 
I've heard many reports about this man. What's so funny about this is it's kind of like him saying, Lord, I don't know if you have heard, but I've heard some reports about this guy. Like, this is not a good assignment, God. I've heard many reports about this man and the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. Are you sure I should go talk to him? He's also come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. I'm not sure if you understand the situation. You want to know how many of these secret police pretend to be Christians? To infiltrate the church so that we bring them to a church service and that. And then they just discover who we are, where we're meeting, where we're worshiping. And then they turn us over. Paul could be faking it. So I don't know if you have got all of your information correct, Lord. Maybe you want to reconsider your assignment that you're giving me. And all God says in uh, verse 15, like God usually does, he says, go, this man is my chosen instrument. Um, No debate, no argument, no back and forth, just Ananias, go. And unlike Jonah, who runs the other way and ends up finishing the assignment anyway because God's the ones that can control, Ananias does what Mary does and says, yes, Lord, it is your will. If you want me to go, even though I think this is ludicrous, I will go. So in some ways, we have a conversion story here, not only of Paul, but we kind of have a conversion story with Ananias as well. Because Ananias is going to really begin to understand the depth of the power of the gospel. That it can change people's lives and it can change people as drastically as a Paul, a murderer of Jesus' followers to a Jesus' follower himself. Paul never forgot how bad he was. And that's why Ananias was afraid to go. In one of Paul's earliest letters some years later of this experience on the Damascus Road, Paul wrote of himself, I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle of disciples. As you well know, he says in Galatians, Having spent all those early years trying my best to stamp out God's church right out of existence. Listen again to how dedicated it was, not just kill a few. I spent all those early years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence. Genocide. But because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. Paul never forgot. He brings up his testimony many times in his witnessing in the book of Acts and his other letters. He never forgot what he came from. So it's understandable that Ananias would be nervous to talk to a guy like this, but God was going to show Ananias what people come from. That God can change anyone's life. Paul was going to learn that. Ananias was going to learn that. And the church, from there forward to today, was going to learn that. That no one is too far from God's grace. 
Whether they're the complete hedonistic sinner living only for themselves, or they're the fanatical religious sinner whose zeal is wrongly placed, no one is out of God's reach. And anyone through Christ can have their life turned around. By remembering where he had come from, Paul would never forget this. And this is important. It's important that we remember where we came from. Because it reminds us of the gospel story for others as well. Because others too come from dark places. By remembering where he had come from, Paul had good news to share with everyone else. By remembering where Paul had come from, Ananias had good news for the church and everyone else. It was a message of grace. Paul would even write to one of the future church leaders, Timothy, and said these words, This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a great one-sentence summary. This is a trustworthy saying. Everyone should accept it, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he adds a little bit of commentary of his own on that. And he says, and I am the worst of them all. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. The same sentiment was shared by John Bunyan, who wrote the classic The Pilgrim's Progress, who entitled his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of All Sinners. There are many in the Christian faith that have understood themselves as the chief of all sinners. And I don't think it's meant to be a debate, well, was Paul or was John Bunyan really the chief of all sinners? I mean, who was the worst of the worst? That's not the point. The point is the fact that they all have come to understand the depth of their own depravity. They understand themselves as, as, I am the worst sinner, and yet Christ died for me. Or what about John Newton, who participated in the African slave trade? only to later find Jesus and repent and even write a letter against the slave trade later in his life, in which in that letter he says, I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me. Notice that. He's not saying I want to just forget the past. I hope that it will be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Why would he want to remember something like that? Because in remembering that, he remembers that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. This is the same John Newton who wrote the most famous hymn that we have, Amazing Grace, that has the words, God saved a wretch like me. It's unfortunate that some people who want to update the language of the hymns, and in some places that's appropriate, we don't need the these and thous of the King James, but sometimes when people want to update the content of the hymns, and they say, well, we should really get rid of that line because thinking of ourselves as wretches is too discouraging. 
But they miss the point. If we don't understand ourselves as sinners, if we don't understand ourselves as wretches, if we don't understand ourselves as lost, we miss the whole gospel. Because if Jesus came to save sinners and we don't think of ourselves as sinners, then he hasn't come to save us. He came to save those who were sick, not those who think they're healthy. Then there's Harold Harkis, who used to run Dr. Hook's used tapes and books on McLeod Trail in Calgary. It was a secondhand porn store. After being invited to church, which I say, wow, great for the guy who invited this guy to church. And uh, Harold says, just walking up the stairs changed my life. I felt the spirit of God within me. Once I started going to church, I realized that what I was doing was not right. It was not what God wanted. And then the following Sunday, he celebrated by shredding 30,000 magazines, smashing hundreds of pornographic videos, and basically committing economic suicide. Now, some of you may say, these are wonderful stories, but it doesn't reflect me. See, I've never been that bad. I've never killed Christians. To be honest, I guess you might say, I've thought about it at times, but I've never actually done it. Uh, I've never been involved in the slave trade, although maybe some of the clothes we wear or some of the things that we buy have pretty much been done and produced by people in virtual slavery. I've never sold pornography, but some of us, many of us maybe have been watching it. I'm a fairly clean, church-going type of person. I grew up on vacation Bible school. I recognized the flannel graphs you had up there. I did the Mexico missions trip thing. I've memorized the entire book of Revelation in the King James. And I also have memorized all the end times footnotes that were put into the King James. If this is you, I understand your pain. Because I'm one of you. It can make it hard for us to understand God's grace when we are so awesome. But maybe we need to look again. Maybe we've missed something. Maybe the grace of God has intervened in our life more than we realize. Maybe we are worse than we are, but it's only by the grace of God that we've been saved from our potential. I remember when I first started dating my wife, Nancy, and I started to hear her testimony. We sort of shared our journey, and she told me right in one of our first dates that God had saved her from a life of sex and drugs. And I was like, whoa. And then I realized that what she meant was the fact that because she had committed her life to Jesus early in her life, she never went down that path. But it was because Jesus came into her life early that she was saved from very potentially going down that path, like many of us have. It wasn't because we're so wonderful, but because God has intervened. I myself probably would have gotten involved in the party scene and scarred myself with alcohol if it wasn't for the grace of God. There's probably no way I would have gotten married as a virgin, or possibly even still be married today if it wasn't but for the grace of God. My fascination with spiritual things, even from a young age, probably would have got me dabbling in the occult. But 
for the grace of God. Where could I possibly be today if it was not for the grace of God? And when I think about the jerk that I can be sometimes, even as a Christian who is working on my sanctification through Jesus, then I realize how much of a jerk would I be without Jesus? But for the grace of God. I've had to come to the conclusion that I actually don't belong in the awesomeness club. That I too am a wretch. I too am a loser. But by the grace of God, I've been made new. God has come to save a sinner, a loser like me, of which I am the worst. God seems to specialize in this kind of work. Of all the people God could have called, it was a man breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord who God said, that is my chosen instrument. That person. Why? To show us what Paul later said in Romans, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners. It's not, Pastor, I just need to get my life all cleaned up and then I'll come to Jesus. It's while we were still sinners. Why did God choose such losers? Like persecuting Paul, adulterous David, murdering Moses, lying Jacob, disobedient Jonah, stupid Samson, and sinful Steph. It's because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that we will remember what we were like before Christ. Or what we would have been like without Christ. It's not so that we can wallow in misery. But to celebrate God's victory in our life. That he actually saves wretches and sinners like you and me. That is something that both Ananias and Paul came to discover about the good news in Jesus. And that is something to boast about. That puts our boasting in the right place. Not in our awesomeness, but we boast about the awesomeness of God as he displayed it in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Christ made us right with God. How did Christ make us right with God? He made us, God made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. That's why the earliest Christian creed was three words. Jesus is Lord. And it revolutionized history. Not Caesar. Caesar can't save you from your sins. Government can't save you. Christ is Lord. If you want to boast, boast about the Lord. That's our message. If God can turn the life of Paul and John and Harold and me and many others in this room around, he can turn your life around as well. For those who've been saved, remember what you've been saved from. Remember what God has saved you from. Not to mourn, but to celebrate. Paul, the self-diagnosed chief of all sinners, realized this and went on to spend the rest of his life captivated with this idea 
to boast about the Lord, to say that if this God, if this Christ can save a loser like me who once persecuted the church, obviously he can save people like you. To forgive you and transform you into a child, a friend, and a co-heir of the King of Kings. If you want to become a follower of Jesus or a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to publicly proclaim that. We've got an Easter service coming up in a few months, and we're going to be having baptisms on that Easter Sunday. And I want to encourage you that that is the next step to take. Look at how this particular story ends. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And in many ways, this can be meant both physically and spiritually. He now is seeing, not just physically, he's now seeing truth. What's the very next thing? Then he got up and was baptized. It's how we proclaim that we are now followers of the way. And then interestingly, because there's one other ordinance or sacrament that Christians practice as a continual testimony to our faith. And in some ways, it can be alluded to by the next sentence. Then he got up and was baptized. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. What do Christians who are followers of the way, Jesus, regularly practice? A bath and a meal. When we've been changed by Jesus, we proclaim our dedication to him through the waters of baptism and then by coming together and eating a meal in remembrance of him. This morning, we are going to conclude our service by the communion meal together. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed. The Bible says that Jesus took bread and he broke it. And Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat of this, do it in remembrance of me. For those of you who recognize that you're sinners, that you're lost, that Jesus has come to save you, that while you were still sinners, he did this for you. We want to welcome you today to come and partake together as a community of Jesus' body given for you. In the same way, Jesus, when he took the cup, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, You do it in remembrance of me. You covenant with me and with one another as a new people. A new people that recognize Jesus is Lord. That's who unites us. That's who saves us. That's who gives us new life. Again, for those that have surrendered themselves to Jesus, we invite you to partake. I'm going to have those that are serving come forward first, and we're going to serve them, as well as the band to come forward. And then we invite the rest of the congregation to come forward when the music starts. We're going to be ending our service and singing as we take communion together that wonderful song, Amazing Grace. 
remembering that he saved wretches like us. This meal is not for those that got their life all worked out. This meal is for wretches who recognize that Jesus has turned them from sinners into saints. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We thank you that we can come together and participate in something like this. It's only because we are forgiven. It's only because we are forgiven that we can eat and drink of you, the forgiver. Lord Jesus, as we ingest you, as we take and eat and drink of you, may you come into our life, fill us, and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.